Good evening, y'all. Okay, so we're going to get the second talk started. First of all, thank y'all so, so much for uh, coming to last week. I know we had a little technical difficulties with the, the mic and whatever that I didn't realize until the very end. But uh, now we're going to make it work because now I have a very powerful mic, which is going to be great. So, uh, first off, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for gathering us together as a community of Prompt Sucker and Shack Bay. Please help us continue to prepare our minds, prepare our hearts for this Eucharistic revival. Allow our hearts to be opened and allowing what the saints have taught us about the Eucharistic Presence. Help us to learn how to encounter the Eucharist as a sacred meal and help us to continue to follow you in whatever path you called us to through our relationship with you through the Most Holy Eucharist. Mother Mary, we also ask for your help. Please allow me to say whatever it is you want me to say and allow my heart to be conformed to yours. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Alright, y'all. So, last week we talked a lot about more intellectual, biblical stuff about the Eucharist. You know, and like I told you, last week is the only week we're going to do that. Don't worry. It won't be that heavy. It won't be that biblical. It won't be that intellectual for this talk and the next. So, last week we talked a lot about, okay, here are the biblical proofs that Jesus is present in the Eucharist, that the Eucharist is a sacred meal, here's why, here's what Moses said about it, here's what St. Paul said about it, connecting the Old and the New Testament together and allowing us to figure out, okay, back then this is what it is, they're all connected, therefore, this is the truth in the future. So, going back to that, like I know I really wanted to talk about what other people have said about Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. And of course, one of the, the, the greatest people that I could think of to talk about is the saints. The people who literally... Uh, just did nothing but be in his presence a, a large amount of their lives. Whether it is through, of course, like adoration, uh, going to Mass, and of course those things, but mostly through relationship and just how they're able to express themselves, express themselves through their love of Jesus in the Eucharist. So, of course, this talk will, will definitely be shorter, I find. If I go over an hour, I would be thoroughly surprised. But me being me, it's very, very possible that I will. Because I talk a lot. Y'all know that. So, uh, I picked three particular saints. Excuse me, six particular saints. Three of which is of 
are the scholars, you know. These are the intellectual saints who said, okay, this about the Eucharist. And then I'll go through each quote that they said. It's usually like one quote each. And I'll unpack that. I'll explain it. And then I chose three saints who just their stories. Nothing, nothing really intellectual. Just explaining their lives, explaining their stories, and why they are who they are, basically. And how their lives were changed, in a sense, through their love of Jesus and the Eucharist. Okay. So... Um, very quickly before I, I dive in, I I wanted to point out just like a very short summary of my, my life. I know I'll talk about it uh, next week, uh, like more of my reflection and more homiletic style next week, but I just want to say something very, very clear. As I know y'all know, relationship with Jesus is important. And, G- and us being in his presence in the Eucharist is very, very important. Because, of course, yeah, duh, we can pray to Jesus in our room, we can pray to Jesus anywhere we want to, but there is something very, very different from praying it in your room by yourself, which is awesome, to looking at him face to face, whether in the tabernacle or in Eucharistic adoration. There's almost like, okay, you can feel this anointedness, so to speak, if that's even a word, in the room, where you're like, okay, I'm on holy ground. The God God of all the universe is face to face with me. What the heck am I going to say to him? What kind of conversations are we going to have? And how is that going to affect me? Because like I shared with y'all last week, uh, there was this short uh, period in my life this past year where it was very, very hard for me to believe that he was even present in, in the uh, monstrance, in the tabernacle, whatever. I looked at, I, like face to face, like literally two inches away from him, and I'm like, I, it's very hard for me to believe that you're there. And then that's when I felt that peace, that sacredness, that something that was going to, okay, in my mind, okay, okay, this is different. And God's speaking to me through that peace, through that sensation of love, if you will. And this is, this is very, very close to what we're talking about here with the saints. But very, very quickly, I want to I want to share one story that just came to me. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. Um, before I get into the saints, just to explain to you how powerful the Eucharist is, uh, my, I'll tell you a story about my dad. My dad was a con- is a convert. He used to be Jehovah's Witness. I know, big. It's it's huge. My dad used to be Jehovah's Witness, and of course he he left when he met my mom. He left the that religion, but there was a period until I was around maybe three ish that uh, that he was like, "You could tell my mom you can raise your kids Catholic, but I don't want any part of it. Like I'm okay with y'all doing that, but there's no reason for me to to be a part of it because he had two problems, as many converts have. Mary 
and Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. I'll talk about Mary some other time if you want. He had a crazy conversion over Mary, but I want to talk about the Eucharist. Uh, to help with his conversion and just figuring, I'm just trying to understand what Catholicism was. Um, Our Lady of the Most Holy Rosary Church in Homa, which was where I was baptized, uh, the pastor at the time gave him the janitorial job. He's like, okay, you want to surround yourself all things Catholic? Here you go. Clean the church. Do what you can. He even was in charge of the cemetery over there at one time. So he's like, okay, cool. So he tell me he tells me the story, and um, in the church there's like this little table onto the side with pamphlets and stuff, kind of like back there. But pamphlets on the side, and he's like sweeping the church, and he looks over at the pamphlet, and he he kind of laughed. And he said, the pamphlet said, if you don't believe Jesus is present in the Eucharist, ask him. Just ask him. And then my dad just chuckled or whatever and just continued about his day. A couple of days later, he was, I think, like mopping the sanctuary or something. It was kind of like granite floor. And uh, he was like, from here to the tabernacle. Actually, no. He's very, very close to the tabernacle. Like this close. And... I, I can remember him telling the story. He just looked straight at the tabernacle and he just stopped. And then he remembered that pamphlet. And he did this as a joke. He looked, he stopped mopping. I think he even laid it to the side, like leaned it against the altar. He looked straight at the tabernacle and said, I don't believe you're in there. Not two seconds later, off to the side where the Mary statue was, the roof collapsed. It didn't knock over the statue. It didn't break the statue. The statue wasn't touched, thank goodness. But the roof basically collapsed. And my dad looked at the the debris and he looked at the tabernacle and then he looked at the sky. He's like, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. You're there. You're there. All right? He was expecting like lightning just to strike him down dead. He's like, okay, I get it. You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And then that was his journey unto believing that Jesus was present in the Eucharist. And that's a crazy, crazy story. My dad has a lot of those stories. And he he's always loved going to Mass, receiving Jesus, and all of that. It was a wild, wild ride for him. And that's awesome. God has a sense of humor, and I love it. So now going about these saints. These saints were not perfect people. These saints were just normal guys and girls just doing their thing. But their one thing that sets them apart from everyone else is just the fact that they had a relationship, like a deep, deep, deep relationship with God. And that's how, why we try to imitate the saints. Y'all have your favorite saints. Y'all have your confirmation saints. I'll personally talk about my own confirmation saint in a minute. But that's one of the reasons why learning about the saints is so important. Okay. Let's go into the first saint in your handout. St. Ignatius of Antioch. And uh, if y'all remember from last week... If I remember talking about it, St. Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of St. John, the Beloved, the Apostle. He's a second-generation apostle. 
And in my personal opinion, it's like, okay, St. Paul, him, of second generation apostles. He's just so open-minded because if you can imagine walking with the beloved disciple and hearing every single story that St. John had witnessed, like imagine St. John telling Ignatius, this is what happened in the upper room. This is what happened at the Last Supper. This is what happened when the Holy Spirit came down upon me and I went crazy and started talking in all of these different languages. Just imagine what was picking at his brain as he was going through this. And uh, he is known of making sure that his insistence of the humanity of Jesus was passed throughout the entire known world. Because it was through his writings, he wants us to know that Jesus was fully human, fully alive in this life. Which makes sense as to why he loves Jesus in the Eucharist, y'all. So here is his, his quote. I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Christ, who was of the seed of David. And for drink, I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. That's a very good word, love. I can remember reading in the catechism a while back, I had to do a little paper on on a specific section of the catechism, and I chose God's God being all powerful, omnipotence. If I remember that word, like God is so powerful, He can do whatever the heck He wants at in whatever way He wants. He can snap His fingers, and then He can create a whole another universe if He wanted to. He could take a hair on my head and create 20 million of me, which would be terrifying. But God can do what he wants, and it's awesome that he can do that. But I remember reading the catechism that there is a specific reason why he's able to do that. Why he's able to be all-powerful and can do whatever he wants. In the catechism it says, the reason why God can be all-powerful is the fact that of two things. One, he's a dad. God the Father is a dad. And he loves his children like a dad would. So therefore, his love is what allows him to be able to do whatever it is he can whatever it is that he can do. So when we say God is love, we literally mean that. Because the fact that God's fatherly love, which goes out to all of you guys, is so powerful that he created an entire universe for you guys, an entire earth. He created all the planets except for Pluto, which is not a planet anymore. Like, he did that for y'all. And the fact that he was willing to give us his precious body, his precious blood, because of his love for us, that just takes it to a whole other level of why we have Jesus in the Eucharist. It's like what St. Ignatius says, like, we know he knew Jesus loved St. John. 
as just of course as he loved all of his disciples. We know that St. John loved Jesus. So therefore, Ignatius was like, okay, if they loved him, what's stopping me from loving him? What's stopping me from giving fully, totally myself to him, even though I never met him face to face? Or at least biblically, we don't know. So that's why the power of, it's kind of like the Huey, what's it called? Huey Lewis and, and the News or something like that. The power of love song from Back to the Future. It's like the power of love is so powerful that it can do all things. That's why God is love. I remember, uh, I can't remember where I heard this argument or this story, but there were these, there's this little debate going on between an atheist and a Christian, a Catholic. And the atheist was basically like, okay, okay, like he was getting aggravated with the debate or whatever, and he was blurred out, he's like, okay, okay, why, why would God, like talking about Jesus in the Last Supper, why would he be holding himself? Like when he said, when Jesus said, this is my body given for you at the Last Supper, they was like, okay, why in the heck, why would God hold himself? Because that's his flesh. Then the chalice, he held his blood. Why would he hold himself? There is no way Jesus being God can like hold his flesh and create his own flesh like this. Like that makes no sense. And the Catholic looks at him and is like, what? Your God can't do that either? Your God can't do that? That's why there's always the significance of God giving totally of himself for us. That's a very long explanation saying, love others because God loves you, and then love you as the universe. Okay. So, going into the next saint in your handout is Saint Justin Martyr. Now, if y'all remember from last week, Saint Justin Martyr was that saint that I read in the Catechism who gave us um, an explanation of what was Mass like in the second century. And I know I just read last time, I just read it last time, I didn't give any explanation, and I allowed it to be y'all's former prayer and reflection back at home. And St. Justin Martyr was this guy who knew what the Mass was. He, uh, he was a philosopher, theologian, and one of the earliest defenders and witnesses of the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. It was very hard for people to, it was very hard for him to lose an argument against his enemies like Roman emperors and things like that. Like, and as I said, he's one of the earliest writers of the Mass. He's the, one of the earliest people, other than the New Testament in the Last Supper, that gave us, okay, here's the format. This is what we do, and this is why. And this is his quote. We call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it, except one who believes our teaching to be true, and who has been washed in the washing, which is for the remission of sins and for our, 
and for regeneration. Baptism, and is thereby living as Christ has enjoyed. Now in this particular quote, what I got from it is that he's taken us all back to the beginning. Remember last week when I was telling you, okay, this is the Old Testament with the manna and how the manna is a prefiguration of what is to come in the New Testament with the Last Supper. He's kind of doing that again, but this time through sacraments. So if we go back to some of our earliest encounters with Christ, one of them is baptism. Baptism is usually the first thing we do right after we get out of the womb. We're baptized and we're cleansed of our original sin so that we may better understand, okay, this is God, this is who I'm encountering, this is who I am willing to partake a relationship with. So therefore, this is what I'm committing to in the future, i.e. the Eucharist. And is thereby living as Christ has enjoined. I love that particular that liber, that particular part. Uh, I know that uh, a saint that's not on here, uh, Saint John Paul II. He was a big, not only was a big advocate for Mary and praying of Mary, but he was also a very big advocate on on the Eucharist. And he loved the Eucharist so, so much that, uh, please don't quote me on this, I could be wrong, but if I remember correctly, he would spend like two to four hours a day in prayer, in front of the adoration. If I remember correctly, or sometimes like he's visiting a particular, I don't know, priest in out of the country or whatever, and his guards or whatever have to literally block the chapel and close them off from it because they know that if he sees the chapel, they will be like an hour or two off schedule and he's just going to go in there. Like one particular time, the guards try to do that, and I think they got there like 30 minutes to an hour before the Pope arrived, and they're like, okay, where's the chapel? Okay, there it is. All right. Do not open this door. Do not let anyone in. He cannot know where it is. And the Pope had no idea where it was. So John Paul II just walks in, and he's just hot. This is when he's older, maybe in the 90s or whatever, and he has his cane. He's hobbling over. He's greeting the people, and... And then he just stops in his tracks. And then he looks over at the the door and he's like, open it. And the guard's like, oh, great. He's gonna, not that it's bad, but he's like, we're gonna be two hours late to everything now. He goes in and he prays. He doesn't care. He just knows Jesus is there and he's going to say hi. That's how I feel Justin Martyr is. He's taken us all back to the beginning and he's explained to us why it's important to be enjoined with him. Why it's important for us to really encounter him face to face. Okay. Uh, 
St. Augustine is the next one. And I know I found three quotes which I really, really like. And like I find them in my own notes. Okay. So St. Augustine was, I'm sure many of y'all have heard of him. He's considered one of the great, he's considered to be one of the greatest saints that our church has ever witnessed, has ever encountered because of his high intellect and his deep, deep knowledge of the faith and Catholicism and all of that jazz. So, but a little more about them, about him. Remember how I said that uh, most of the time, they all, they, saints had a relationship with Christ. This guy was one of the worst. <laughs> In the sense that in his past life, he was not a Catholic. He was, he was a Manichaean, which basically is, which are, who are pagans who thought they were Christians who believed that the only way to salvation was through spiritual truth and knowledge. And, I mean, he was like a bad dude. He had a hot temper. He slept around all the time. He, he had a child out of wedlock. He, he, he partied all night. He, he did whatever drugs that they had at the time, which I have no idea what they could be. Like, he was bad. And it wasn't until he was, wait, he was literally the total opposite of what we perceive him as. But it wasn't until the death of another saint, his mom, Saint Monica, who spent literally her, her entire life praying for her son's conversion. And it wasn't until her deathbed that he converted. And because of his knowledge and because of his high intellect, through his pagan past, he was able to use that gift and to push forward every single theological truth that we know about this guy. Of the church through this guy, I should say. So yeah, his, he's very, he's a very well-known and I would say powerful saint because of his mom, his mom's prayers, his mom's sacrifices, his mom's love for mass, communion, and just relationship with God. So I'm going to very quickly go through the, very quickly go through these. The first quote by St. Augustine. Quote, the Lord Jesus wanted those whose eyes were held lest they should recognize him, to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. The faithful know what I'm saying. They know Christ in the breaking of the bread. For not all bread, but only that which receives the blessing of Christ, becomes Christ's body. Remember uh, last week when I talked about the road to Emmaus and how Cleopas and the other dude didn't recognize Jesus until he broke the bread? 
and their eyes were open and they're like, oh wait, this is our master, this is our Lord, this is the guy we totally were going to give up our lives for. It wasn't until the breaking of the bread that they knew who he was. And I know last week I talked about that already. I know last week it was all about, okay, what's stopping you from encountering him now? What's stopping you from encountering him now? St. Augustine didn't encounter him last time, except through his mom. It wasn't until later on that he realized, oh wait, this stuff is real. This stuff is true. And this is why. And it makes sense. And that's how I kind of connected it with Rosemary. Those two particular followers may have followed him for a long period of time and believed in him and everything and all of his truth. But just like the other disciples, they're very slow in their heads. And they don't figure it out until the last minute. Because it wasn't until the breaking of the bread that they saw who Jesus was. Okay. The next quote by St. Augustine. What you see is the bread and the chalice. That is what your own eyes report to you. But what your faith obliges you to accept is that the bread is the body of Christ and the chalice, the wine, the blood of Christ. I know many people uh, see the Mass and not know what it is. Like I said last week, it's very hard for people to understand, okay, what is going on? Like, especially like a convert, for example, and they're just getting into the faith, and they come to Mass for the first time, and they're like, what is this? It makes no sense. They're either blinded by truth, or they just legitimately just don't know. And it's up to us, up to us to tell them. Very quickly, I want to tell you about my confirmation saint, uh, who's not in the handout. His name is Blessed Miguel Pro. Uh, Blessed Miguel Pro was a Jesuit priest in the 1920s. He lived during the Spanish Revolution. Uh, it always intrigued me because the first time I encountered this saint, I was probably 12, 13, and I had a, a book by the daughters of St. Paul sisters who like write books and publish them and things like that. I had this book it was called God's Secret Agent and me being a kid I was like oh that's cool God has a secret agent this is great I'm going to read it it's going to be guns it's going to be fighting it's going to be beautiful women this is awesome so I was like oh wait it's about this priest and the more I read the more I was intrigued by his story and one of the one of the funny stories that I connected with this quote was uh, firstly during the Spanish Revolution, Miguel, as a priest, was sent back to his home to help the people who need him to like give them the sacraments, give them anointing, give them baptisms, all of that. But there were guards everywhere, and literally, the 
moment a Catholic or a priest, anybody, Christian or whatever, was caught, they were killed. Either on the spot or put on, on a, or put on an unfair trial and then sentenced to death. So, Father Miguel Pro had to be clever in his ways. He was known as he's like he's known as like a master of disguise of the saints. He would dress up as a street worker. He would dress up as a commoner. Uh, I think he even even though he suffered from stomach pains and stomach ulcers all his life, he grew a mustache and took up smoking just so that the guards wouldn't think that he was a priest. But I, I remember one particular story. Uh, he was doing mass, and I think it was right before the consecration when he says, "This is my body, this is my blood," and all of that. Doing mass, like a small, small room, probably ten by ten. Everybody, it's like completely packed, and he's about to do it. And someone rushes in, and they're like, "The guards are coming! The guards are coming!" So Father Miguel's like, oh great, everyone hide, help me take down the altar, help me to take off my vestments or whatever, and play cards or something, smoke, do something, I don't care. So then they do it, they, they put everything away, they, some people hide in closets, like it's, it's like madhouse. And then the moment Father Miguel puts on his jacket, like a, a suit coat, jacket, he sits down and the guards walk in and he's just shuffling cards while other people are shuffling cards and just sweating. The guards walk in, look around the house, and of course they don't see anything. They look at Father Miguel, who they didn't know was a priest. And then, and then they said, we saw a priest come in here and we're trying to find him. And Father Miguel, not lying, takes out a cigarette, lights it, and starts smoking it. And he's like, does it look like a priest is here? And the guard's like, no. And they walked off. Closed the door, waited a couple minutes, and then Miguel's like, all right, snuff out the cigarette. Let's get back to Mass. They set up Mass, they finished Mass, everyone was safe, everyone was good. The guards had no idea. Then eventually, uh, Father Miguel was caught. He was tortured in, the, in prison, along with his biological brother and, if I remember correctly, a brother, another brother priest. No, excuse me, a friend, just a friend. He was put on an unfair trial. He was sentenced to death by firing squad, and his last words were "Viva Cristo Rey." which is long live Christ the King. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew nothing was going to stop him from allowing the people to encounter him. Because even though the people knew that he was a priest, even though he dressed in long clothes to hide from the guards, even though he did all of that, it wasn't until the guards saw that they wanted to get rid of them. But the funny thing is, the governor of Mexico at the time who was persecuting all these Catholics, they were like, okay, this is the priest that's been helping everybody. The moment we kill him, I'm going to put him on the newspapers and all hell's going to break loose. Like, 
No one is going to want to do everything. Everything will be back in order. No one's going to go to his funeral. Like, but the moment people found out, <laughs> it was like tens of thousands were there at his funeral procession, if I remember correctly. Venerating the body of this priest who was willing to give them the Eucharist. And then he died for it. The governor had a fancy tomb that he erected back in Mexico when he died. It was all, it's like fancy, it's big, probably bigger than maybe half of the sanctuary right now. Father Miguel is just a little bitty plaque on the ground. And there's more flowers, more rosaries, more petitions. It looks even more beautiful than the governor. Father Miguel knew how to be a priest. And that's why I chose that guy to be my confirmation saint. I can't wait to, until the day he actually canonized a saint. To where I can call him Saint Miguel Pro. Because God willing, when I become a priest, that's the kind of priest I want to be. Willing to push myself to the limits in order to give people what they need. Whew, I almost got emotional there. Okay. I'm going to very, very quickly, because we're kind of short, running on time, I'll very quickly go over the last quote by Augustine. Just give me like a few, couple of points for y'all to take home with you and things like that. So here's the last quote by Augustine. I turn to Christ because he, he, it is he whom I seek here, and I discover how the earth is adored without impiety. How without impiety the footstool of his feet is adored. For he received earth from earth because flesh is from the earth. And he took flesh from the flesh of Mary. He walked here in the same flesh and gave us the same flesh to be eaten unto salvation. But no one eats that flesh until flesh eat, until first he adores it. And thus it is discovered how such a footstool of the Lord's feet is adored. And not only do we not sin by adoring, we do sin by not adoring. Whenever I think of this particular quote, I think of two particular scenes from the crucifixion. Y'all know uh, the good and the bad thief? And although we don't know the, the good thief's name, the good thief knew, <laughs> encountered Jesus in his death, in his deathbed, you could say. And it wasn't until then that he realized, oh wait, this is an innocent man. This is the Messiah. This is the guy who's literally dying to save all of humanity. And he's giving himself totally and fully. Because like I said last week, whenever I said, whenever the priest says, this is my body or this is my blood, body and blood can translate to self. This is my self, which is given up for you. And so when the good thief says, Lord, uh, like, forgive me for all my sins. And then Jesus says, you shall be with me in paradise. The, kind of like the Rose of Emmaus, the thief saw Jesus. He understands who he was in his encounter with him. And in although earthly, short relationship with him, 
He would then say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, please. And that's all Jesus needed to hear to say, yes, you're going to be with me up there, and we're going to have fun. And although we don't know biblically who that, the name of the good thief was, we can, we can imagine the church would have declared him saying, it's possible. I don't know, but it's possible. And then the next thing that I thought about when it comes to the crucifixion is the soldier who pierced his side with the lance. That guy is, that guy we know, his name is Longinus. And he's the saint. Saint Longinus. This was a Roman soldier who, of course, uh, obeyed the rules. He, he wasn't a troublemaker. He knew what he was doing. He knew the law. Uh, I wouldn't say he was more of like the outcast of all the Roman soldiers, but he was, he was one that guys were like, okay, this guy is different and we don't know why, but it's okay. Like, it's not a bad difference. But Longinus had a specific type of defect, almost, a disease, if you will, to where it was very hard for him to see. That was his only disability. He was, his eyesight was blurry, of course, he didn't have glasses in the time. Like, his, his eyesight was blurry. It was very hard for him to see. And whenever the, the head soldier was like, oh wait, Jesus is dead, okay, we're not going to break his leg. His legs, Longinus, you pierce his side just so that we know for sure he's dead. You imagine Longinus like, I can't see anything. I'm probably going to hit his thigh or something. I'm probably going to hit the, the, the cross itself and make a fool of myself. Why, why do you want me to do this? So of course he reluctantly does it. He pierces Jesus' side and y'all know what happens next. Blood and water start gushing out. And that blood and water landed on his face and he was able to see. He got down on his knees and he's like, oh boy, what just happened? Here am I, just a, a soldier who does nothing but be a soldier. And then this guy completely gave me back my vision even though he was dead. Uh, I honestly can't remember what book of saints that I read this from, but in that book it says, okay, shoot, after the crucifixion, after Jesus is buried or whatever, Longinus runs up to Mary and kneels in front of her and begs her for forgiveness because you know she saw that. You know, I'm sure you can imagine how devastating it was for her to see all that. He went up to her and he's like, forgive me, forgive me. She said, I forgive you. Basically, as a mother was like, you were following orders. And I know what my son did for you. He left. He stopped being a soldier. He basically, in written documents, it didn't, I haven't read that he said, I haven't read that he became an apostle or anything like that, or that kind of disciple. But he stopped what he was doing, being a soldier. He went and told people everything that has happened and evangelized to the known world. And then they finally caught him and killed him. He didn't know anything. He didn't expect anything. And then a dead man changed his life. 
that dead man who is willing to give himself so that loneliness can encounter him. Okay. Who said I wasn't going to go over an hour? <laughs> yeah, I know, me. Okay. To respect y'all's time, I will do my best to go through quickly these stories. The just plain stories of the saints. We talked about scholars of saints. Three scholars of saints. St. Justin Martyr, St. Augustine, uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch. But now these are just three stories. And I'll go through them like very, very quickly. St. Tarsus is known as the martyr of the Eucharist. And I won't read this, this story like this, but he was just a little boy who, it was during the Roman persecution, and this, this little boy was trying to help doctors and stuff and the priests and giving the people Jesus in the Eucharist right before they die and things like that. That was his job. But the priest was like, okay, I need someone to secretly go to the chapel and get more hosts. Can you do that? And he's like, yes. He goes. He, grabs, he wraps in this little mantle, like his cloak. He hides it and he tries to discreetly go into the house. These boys attack him because they're like, what are you hiding? What are you hiding? What you got? You're obviously clenching it pretty close to your heart. It must be gold. It must be jewels. It must be whatever. He's like, I'm not going to tell you what this is. I'm not going to open my hand to show you what this is. They, of course, were mad. They beat him to death. And um, it was either before he died or right after he died. I honestly can't remember at the top of my head. But... He's laying on the ground and he's holding the host in his hand like this, just arm outstretched. And they try, I know this is not in your handout, this is where I've read it otherwise. They try to pry out of his hands, like pry his hands open and they, it wouldn't budge at all. And it wasn't until later on, like it says, that like a soldier, someone he trusted, whatever, he was able to open his hands and take the Eucharist back to the house. A martyr for the Eucharist, not willing to let evil touch Jesus. Now the next thing, blessed Carlos Acutis. He's a relatively new saint, a new specimen, if you will. He was only 15 when he died. And he died, if I remember correctly, in around 2005, if I remember correctly. He was known as, he's one of the most modern saints we have. But he was 15 when he passed away of leukemia. But this boy was just a normal boy. He played video games. He grew up in the 80s and 90s. He played video games. He he watched movies with friends. He, he, he grew up in Italy, so he did everything that Italians do. Maybe eat pasta, pizza, whatever it is. Gelato. Ooh, yes. 
but he was just a normal kid. And his love for Jesus and the Eucharist was so impactful for everyone. To where he even made a website uh, just highlighting so many Eucharistic miracles that became so, so popular. He made sure the message of Jesus, the Eucharistic miracles came out. This past uh, year, last September to October, I had the privilege of going to uh, Rome and Assisi for, uh, with some seminarians. And Carlos Kudis is buried in Assisi. And I was able to go see his incorruptible body multiple times. This kid was wearing Nikes. You saw Nikes. You saw his was like he died yesterday. I even got up close to the glasses I could and I and I saw one hair on his chin that he was trying to grow out. Fifteen years old. Jeans, Nikes, and incorruptible saint. The people have access to this 15-year-old's life through not only his love of the Eucharist, through his website that he created, but his example of, wait, he was a normal kid that people grew up with, that they saw him, that they played with him, that they laughed with him, that they cried with him, that they pulled pranks on him. Like I said, and then God allowed him, when he died, to be an incorruptible. Someone that the church recognizes, okay, God gave this person special graces for people to see this person every single day, even after they died. The saint who is the most perfectly incorrupt is St. Bernadette of Lourdes. Who's like, you can still move her fingers. It was literally like she died like a couple of hours prior. When I was there, Carlos of course you saw like some slight, 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 slight wax on his face. But it was the same thing. God allowed us to see, okay, here is the devotion in the present time. This kid wore Nikes. He played video games. He was a normal kid. And his love for the Eucharist was going to continue to help everyone else learn about that. His example was love Jesus in the everyday. And that's why he's popular. He's he's very, very, very cool going to his tomb. I wish I had a picture that I could pull up and show you. It was an incredible, incredible sight to see. I have my rosary on me uh, that I was able to touch this tomb and it was was a powerful moment for me personally. All right, last thing, and then I'll open up for some questions. St. Catherine of Siena. This was another saint that I was privileged to go to the tomb when I was in Rome and Italy. If you know one of our uh, our newly ordained priests, now Father Joseph Lapurus, he studies in Rome. Uh, we did a mass with him right after he was ordained a deacon in Rome. So it was like his first mass with his first homily as a deacon. And he chose the church where St. Catherine of Siena was buried. 
where she's buried underneath the altar. And you saw like a stone marble coffin. And before Mass, the people in charge of the church are like, yeah, 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 it's okay. They opened the back of the church, the, sorry, excuse me, the back of the altar. Like it was glass and whatever. They opened the back of it and they're like, go ahead and pray with it. Don't do anything stupid, but go pray with it. I touched the tomb of the saint. I placed my rosary on, my, on the saint. I placed rosaries for my family on the saint's tomb. It was a powerful, powerful moment. And this saint experienced many mystical graces through her reception of the Eucharist and lived seven years solely on the sacrament. She knew that Jesus was all she needed in life. And she didn't care if it was going to make her physically sick by not eating anything except for Jesus in the Eucharist, body and blood. And it says here that her spiritual director, who's also a blessed, said, quote, her fasting did not affect her energy. However, she remained, maintained a highly active life during those seven years. In fact, most of her great accomplishments occurred during that period. Not only did her fasting not cause her to lose energy, but became a source of extraordinary strength. It was during those seven-year period that she received so many mystical graces, so many spiritual writings that the church is able to receive and they're able to teach throughout the known world. She was, the, she was also the saint. Remember in the history of the church where the Pope was like, okay, I can't be in Rome anymore. I'm going to go to France and be a Pope in France and what have you. This little bitty third order Dominican was the one who went up to the Pope and was like, you go to Rome now. She stood up to one of the most powerful people on the planet. Little, little, little bitty third order Dominican. And the Pope's like, okay, sure. And they walk. They go. She manifests how the Eucharist provides the spiritual food most needed for our journey through life. That was the last sentence of the quote. She knew what was important. She knew what she needed. And she knew the only thing she needed was she now that's not to say us going throughout our day-to-day life is to like, okay, I, I can do nothing but pray in front of the Eucharist. I can't. I can do nothing but receive Jesus in the Eucharist and not eat anything else like tatabui or whatever. Like, I'm, it's just going to be kids. Like, no, eat the pie, please. Eat the burgers. They're good for you. It's great. Go to Five Guys and get a, a three patty milk or whatever if you want to. But it's through this saint's example that we can say, okay, she's telling us that the material world doesn't really matter. It's necessary. But is everything in the material world going to help us get to heaven? Probably not. A lot of things can. A lot of things can. But she knew that she had to have that encounter that special encounter with Jesus. 
in order to obtain, obtain those spiritual graces that she received, she knew what she had to do. Even though she lived solely on his Eucharist for seven years, not eating, eating or drinking anything else except for that, God gave her the grace necessary to be able to push forth her relationship and her firmness, especially with the Pope, in order to inspire so many people. Like I said, I went to her tomb. I prayed with her tomb. It was crazy. It was, it was totally incredible to hear about this particular thing. few closing remarks. I'll talk more about my personal stuff next, next week on Monday. But I just want to point out, many people's lives were changed just because their one-on-one encounter with Him, their relationship with Him, the realization like, okay, this is a meal that I'm partaking but it's not just a meal where I just eat, say thank you, and leave. No, it's a, a meal of encounter. And it's a meal of sacredness and wholeness. And it's something to not take for granted. So, never forget about that encounter. Never forget about these saints who would literally give up their lives solely to protect, to consume, and to have that relationship with you, Bruce. Because it's a wild thing to fathom. And then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. Our Lady of Mount Sucker, hastens to our help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.